morning about children's ministry and a story that I heard one time about this little girl who comes home from church and she's so excited about the story that she heard in Sunday school. And she says, Mommy, we learned about the, the first people that God made. And her mom said, well, tell me about it, Susie. And, and Susie said, well, God made this man named Adam. And man, it was great. He lived in this really, really beautiful garden. And there were all these animals and he got to name the animals. But after a while, Adam got really lonely. And so this is what God did. God made Adam fall into a deep, deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, God took out his brain and used it to make a woman. Some of you guys are laughing a little too loud this morning. You know, if you've read the book, you know that's not exactly how the story goes. But, but, one thing is certain when it comes to this book we call the Bible. The stories here are designed to change our lives and to teach us how to live in a world where often things do not work out exactly the way we planned. A number of years ago, I saw a really intriguing movie called The Book of Eli. Did anybody see that starring Denzel Washington? Several of you did. Um, I've never seen a bad Denzel Washington movie. But here's a, a picture from the movie of Denzel. And let me just read what one website wrote about the movie. It says this, a post-apocalyptic tale. It's, it's set after this nuclear explosion on Earth. And it says, in which a lone man, Denzel Washington, fights his way across America in order to protect a sacred book that holds the secrets to saving humankind. Do you know what the sacred book is? Yeah, the Bible. And it is a book that holds the secret to saving humankind. And church, isn't it true as we look around us, as we watch the news this week, humankind needs saving. And just in the last few days, the terrorist attack in Barcelona, Spain, the police officers killed in, in, in Florida, the the protest in Boston. We look around us and we see a world that's in trouble. And this book explains why that's the case, where the trouble came from, but it doesn't leave us there. It shows us what we can do about it. Because as you read this book, you find the trouble really did start back in the Garden of Eden with this real person, Adam, and his wife, Eve. And many of you know the story in the book that Adam and Eve were created by God so that they could know him and love him and serve him, but they made a tragic choice. They decided to disobey God and that disobedience had consequences. The Bible calls our disobedience to God sin. And that sin separated Adam and Eve from God. You know the story in, in the book of Genesis where God forces Adam and Eve to leave the only home they've ever known. And I cannot imagine the sadness in both of their hearts but also the sadness in the heart of God. Because even though they had disobeyed him, God still loved Adam and he still loved Eve. And I think it's so amazing that when God forces him to leave the garden, he doesn't leave them without hope. In fact, he makes a promise. It's in Genesis 3.15, the first reference to Jesus. Because God says a day is coming when a child will be born who will make it possible for our relationship to be restored. And of course, as you read the pages of the Bible, you see that God fulfills that promise he keeps that promise all through the Old Testament. Prophets say that the one is coming, the one that God has promised. And then finally, on that Christmas day in Bethlehem, a baby is born. Jesus Christ arrives in our world. And he's not just a baby. And this is something that's so hard for us to comprehend. He is God come in the flesh. Because the Bible says there's one God. And this one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
and he volunteers for the most daring, the most dangerous rescue mission the world has ever known, to come and rescue you and me. Because like Adam and Eve, we come into this world with a heart that pulls us away from God, away from his purpose and plan. Our sin separates us from a holy God, and because God is just, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed. We call that what kind of news? You guys know this, right? Yeah, it's bad news. And it's bad news because we can't do anything to save ourselves, so God takes the initiative. And God the Son comes to earth and lives the life we could never live, a perfect life, and then he allows himself to be crucified so that we could live. And on the cross, an amazing thing takes place. God is willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. The wrath of God against our sin that we deserved is poured out on his son, and Jesus is crushed, the Bible says, for us. But thank God that's not the end of the story. He comes back to life three days later, and he invites us to follow him. He says, hey, come and follow me. I'll give you a new life. But you've got to admit the truth about yourself, that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, that I died for your sins. And when you do that, when you decide to follow me, my father will adopt you into his family. Now, here's what's so important. For anyone who's made that decision to become a Christian, this book is critical because this book is all about Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in Luke 24, that everything in this book is about him, points to him. This is what one pastor said about the Bible. I love this description. God's word generates life, creates faith, produces change, frightens the devil, causes miracles, heals hurts, builds character, transforms circumstances, imparts joy, overcomes adversity, defeats temptation, infuses hope, releases power, and guarantees our future forever quite a book wouldn't you say and church here's the deal God wants us to be people of the book it's really important we get together on Sunday mornings and what do we study together every single Sunday we have a Bible study right here in fact I have notes for you every week it says Bible study outline and that's great I'm glad we get to do that but during the week guess what I want you to do study the Bible for yourself it's sort of like a little child you know when you have a baby you get to feed them and that's kind of fun for a while right and you look forward to the day when they can take the spoon in their own hand and put the food in their own mouth and that's the day to celebrate well that's what God wants for us when we come to know Christ it's like we're baby Christians but God wants us to grow up and one of the ways that we grow up is by learning how to study the scripture and apply it to our lives not just in a group setting but as individual believers in fact, this is our verse of the week. Take a look at this verse. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman or a workwoman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly does what? Handles the word of truth, which is the Bible. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to walk us through a passage in the book of Philippians. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we're going through Philippians and the purpose is to figure out how we can live with joy and peace in a world filled with trouble. But what I'd like to do is show you a way to study the Bible on your own. This is actually what I do every week as I prepare a message for you. So we're going to do this. We're going to actually look at some questions that you can ask whenever you read a portion of the Bible. And the first question is this. And again, this is on your outline. So you can use this as you study the Bible. The first question is this. What does it say? What are these verses saying? And this is the process of observation. Now, at this point, you're not trying to apply it to your life because you're not even sure what it says. And here's something else. If you just read the Bible, but you don't write anything down, that's Bible reading. 
It's not Bible study. When you study, you actually write things down. You take notes. So that's the first thing. What does it say? Here's the second question to ask, well, what does it mean? And that's a process of interpretation. Now, you may be thinking, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Well, not necessarily. And here's why. We use words in different ways. If I were to stand up here right now and tell you that, that somebody's pulling my leg, what would I mean? What would you infer from that statement? You can tell me, yeah, somebody's joking with me. Yeah, somebody, he's pulling my leg. If I'm in a chiropractor's office and I say, whoa, somebody is pulling my leg, that might mean something entirely different. They might literally be pulling my leg. So how do you know what words mean? Well, you have to look at the what? The context, exactly. You know, for example, the word pin. You know, if I'm in a wrestling match, a high school wrestling match, the word pin means something, doesn't it? But if I'm bowling, does it mean something else? Yeah. What if I'm at the, um, the ATM and I need to enter my pin number? It, it's all different because those are different contexts. You guys get the idea. So it's really important to say, what does it say? And then what does it mean? That's the interpretation. And then here's the third question. What other verses explain it? You know, one of the keys to understanding the Bible is to let the Bible explain itself. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and you go, man, I just, I don't get it. But there are other places in the Bible that explain the verse that you're looking at. That's the idea of correlation. And then here's the fourth step in Bible study, the question, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? That's the application question. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through these four questions and apply them to some verses that we're going to look at this morning. Are you with me? Because I think this will be helpful for, for all of us. We're going to get to the application toward the end. So we're studying the book of Philippians. And just as a matter of context, um, who wrote the book of Philippians? You should know this by now if you've been here. Okay, the Apostle Paul. An apostle means one sent. Where is he as he writes this letter? Okay, he's in prison in Rome. And he's in prison because he created this big public disturbance. And so he's appealed to the emperor and he's awaiting a trial. And he can't go and be with the Philippian believers. So he writes a what? He writes a letter. And in this letter, he's basically saying, hey, thank you for the help that you've given me. And he says some other things to encourage them. But let's pick this up. It's in chapter 2, verse 19, if you've got your Bible with you this morning. Um, otherwise, the verses are going to be on the screen. Paul writes this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone else looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That's some pretty high praise for Timothy. And then he goes on and says this. He says, but you know, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. And now Paul's going to talk about another man. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you send to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And then Paul goes on to explain this a little bit more. He says, indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. 
And then Paul closes this part of the letter by, by saying this, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Why? Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, you might read this passage on your own and think, well, that's kind of nice. I mean, you know, Paul's writing this thank you note and sharing some of his travel plans, but I don't really get how this applies to my life, so I'm just going to skip over this so I can get to the good stuff in the Bible. Now, if you're thinking like that, I would challenge you to think again. And here's one of the reasons. Take a look at this verse. It says that all Scripture, not part of it, all of it, is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. I love that. It straightens us out and it teaches us how to do what's right. Now sometimes as you read the Bible, you might ask this question, well, why did God put that in there? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, what is up with that? Well, to answer that question, you've got to actually do some study. You've got to explore this passage of the Bible. So we're going to do that together this morning. So this is on your outline. Here's the observation question. What does it say? Well, that's pretty straightforward because Paul intends to send two men to the church in Philippi, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he speaks highly of these men and says, hey, you should honor guys like this. So that's pretty clear. And then you get to the interpretation question. Well, what does it mean? Well, Paul's description of these two men really points out some things that should be true of all followers of Christ. And here's the first, and this is on your outline. A follower of Christ is called to be compassionate. Called to be compassionate. Now, look at what Paul says about Timothy again. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul is saying, look, I've worked with a lot of people in a lot of difficult and dangerous situations, and Timothy is my go-to guy, and here's why, because he cares about you. He really cares, and he cares if you guys are lonely. He cares when your heart is broken. He cares about those who are spiritually lost. He cares about people who are hungry and tired. He cares about what Jesus cares about, and what does Jesus care about? He cares about you. Your physical needs, your emotional needs, your spiritual needs. He cares about me. And Paul says that Timothy is like Jesus because he's a young man with a really big heart. So the first thing we see is that a follower of Christ is called to be what? You can look at your notes. It starts with a C. Compassionate. Compassionate. Here's the second thing. A follower of Christ is called to be consistent. Consistent. In verse 22, Paul goes on to say this. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel now do you think that timothy ever felt like not going to work everything he ever got tired or discouraged or thought man this is accomplishing absolutely nothing i teach these people they just don't listen i'm done with this do you think he ever felt like that well i do but you know what he did he kept going he kept serving he kept loving because he was serving Christ and because he was serving the people that Jesus died for and he loved them deeply. He was a young man who was consistent and Paul commends him for that. And here's another thing that we see in this passage about followers of Christ. A follower of Christ is called to be, can you say it together? Courageous, courageous. And we see this in the life of a man named Epaphroditus. 
And by the way, you know, when we get home to heaven and we have all these conversations with people and this guy named Epaphroditus introduces himself, you can say, I know exactly who you are. I was in church on Sunday morning and we studied this in Philippians. So I know your story. Now here's the story about Epaphroditus. Paul's in prison and the Philippian believers realize that he needs help. So they take up an offering and they need a volunteer to take this offering to Paul. Now this was a big ask. Because not only did they want the person to take the money to Paul, they wanted this person to be Paul's personal attendant while he's a prisoner in Rome. And what that means is this. Paul could be executed by the emperor. This is a life or death situation. And anybody connected to Paul could be executed too. Just guilt by association. So this is a very dangerous and difficult task. And not only that, the, mile is, the trip is 800 miles long and he has to walk. Now, do you think that took some courage? Absolutely. I mean, think about this. What would happen if I stood up here on a Sunday morning and said, hey, there's another uh, believer who's in trouble and I need a volunteer to take an offering. We're gonna take up an offering. We're gonna take it to this person and I need somebody who will travel 800 miles on foot. You can't fly. You can't take a train. It's a dangerous trip. Oh, by the way, you might get sick, really sick along the way because that's what happens to Epaphroditus. He gets so sick he almost dies. There's this thing called the Roman fever and it would sweep through Rome and just kill people. So this guy is a guy of great courage and it points out this fact, church, that God calls us to follow Jesus Christ and to answer that call, we need to be people of compassion, consistency, and courage. I remember the first time that I was invited to go to Colombia, South America, with a team from Voice of the Martyrs, the stories that I heard rocked my world. Let me say it that way. I mean, I had read stories in the magazine published by Voice of the Martyrs. I'd never sat next to somebody and had them share the persecution and how family members had been murdered and their kids had been abducted. I'd never had the opportunity to pray with them and see the incredible commitment they have to Christ because these pastors and their wives, they don't stop. The, the enemy has tried to destroy them and their families and they refuse to quit. They keep serving Jesus. And that story is repeated around the world every single day. And that initial experience, meeting with these persecuted believers, really shaped my heart. And it, it made me ask the question, what am I willing to risk for the cause of Jesus? And I remember a conversation that I had with one of the staff members from VOM. And he was an older guy, very wise, and he said, Dudley, let me, let me talk to you for a minute. He said, listen, you've seen some things here that have deeply impacted you because we've talked about them. And you've seen a commitment from people that are willing to risk everything for Jesus. He said, now be careful when you go back home because that's a different world back in America. The church is a different kind of place. And yes, Jesus calls us to follow him. And yes, Jesus calls us to make commitments. But just as you've stepped into a different world, here, you're stepping into a different world when you go back. And what you need to do is this. Don't compare the commitment of these believers with the commitment of believers in your church. What you need to do as a pastor is, is do this. Come alongside the people that God's called you to lead and encourage them to take that next step to grow in their commitment with Christ. Because that's true for every one of us. And you know what, church? I am so encouraged because this is what I see and this has been happening over the last several years, the commitment level in our church is moving up. 
And people, this is amazing to me, people are taking risks. They're taking financial risk. Let me give you an example. Just a few months ago, I stood up here with John Hernandez and we talked about the ministry of CIN, rescuing kids that are abused, abandoned, neglected. And, and John said, look, we've got, we've got kids in, in Bolivia, we've got kids in Honduras, they need sponsors. We had 38 people in our church, or 38 families that sponsored 38 children. And I thought, wow, that is remarkable, but I didn't realize how remarkable it was until Chris and I, my wife Chris and I, had a conversation with John and his wife Maritza, and he said, Dudley, we've never, ever seen that kind of response from a church in 15 years. We've never seen that. That's the work of God's Spirit calling people to step up and step out in faith. So that was encouraging. And then I was sharing this with, um, with a couple of people as well. Our trip to Honduras back in June, we were talking with the team, we had some meetings before the trip, and we were talking about the risks, and part of it was risking your health, and people saw that, and they thought, whoa, this is pretty serious, I gotta get all these shots? I mean, I could get this, and I could get that, and whoa. And I remember when I um, said I would go to Africa back in March, I looked at all the shots I had to get and went, whoa. I'm going to risk my health. And I was sore for two weeks. I had shots, so many shots. And here's what happened. As people went to Honduras, several of us got sick. And it's like, oh, well, we knew this could happen. And here's the remarkable thing. People were sick. I mean, seriously sick where they couldn't work for a couple of days. I never heard a word of complaint. Not one, not a word of self-pity. Why me? Why did this have to happen now? None of that. You know why? People counted the cost. They knew they were taking a risk and they knew why. Because they wanted to share the love of Jesus with kids who desperately needed to know that there's a God who loved them. And I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, I was so encouraged to see that. It was an amazing thing. And church, this is what Jesus said. He said this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Timothy and Epaphroditus knew that to be true. And I'm encouraged because more and more of us are learning, man, that's absolutely true. It's only in losing our lives, putting everything on the line for Jesus that we find out what it means to truly live. We sang about it this morning. All to Jesus. What was the song? All to Jesus, I what? Yeah. That's where life is found, in surrendering our lives to the purpose and cause of Christ. Well, real quickly, the question after that is, okay, well, I've read about Timothy, I've read about Epaphroditus. What other verses would explain what's going on here? Well, there's other verses in Philippians, in chapter four about Epaphroditus. There's actually two books in the Bible about young Timothy and his life that you could check out. And then we get to the last question. Okay, so what? How do I apply this to my life? And I've listed two possible applications. Here's the first. It says this, develop these qualities. The idea of being compassionate, consistent, courageous. Develop these qualities in your life. The qualities that we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so if you're studying this at home on your own, you could say to yourself, okay, well, you know, how compassionate am I really? I mean, am I willing to put the needs of other people above my own? Or do I pretty much live in a world that's mostly about me? And then the second question, how consistent am I? When, when I sign up at church, do I show up? Is my word something that people can count on? How consistent is my life? And then the last question, well, how courageous am I? 
What kind of risk am I willing to take for Christ and for his, his kingdom? And then the second application is this, honor believers like these two men. Because that's what Paul is encouraging the church to do. The title of the message this morning is God's model for ministry, but it could also be titled this, God's model for manhood. Because these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, give a model of what a godly man looks like. And it has to do with those three character qualities. What's the first? Being what? Compassionate. What's the second? Consistent. What's the third? Courageous. And who is the most compassionate, consistent, and courageous person the world has ever known? His name is Jesus Christ. And Timothy and Epaphroditus were following Jesus and trying to be like him. And so if I could just, if I could do this as we close the, the message out, if I could just talk to the guys, the men who are here this morning, and in particular to guys that are married. And ladies, listen, you're welcome to listen to our, well, it's not really a conversation. It's going to be a one-sided conversation. But I will talk to you guys if you want to talk to me. But here's the deal. I've been, I've been married for, um, for quite a few years, for a number of decades, actually. And I've been um, your pastor here for, for quite some time as well. And I know this from my own life and from talking to so many people, so many couples, so many Christian women, when you're a Christian woman and you're married, you want your husband to be committed to Jesus Christ. In so many homes inside the church, the reality is that the wife is the spiritual leader, not the husband. And guys, let me just say, that's not God's design. That's not his plan. He wants men to lead their families and he wants men to love their wives. Listen carefully to the point of extreme sacrifice. Now, how do I know that? Because God told us. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And listen, I'm not just pointing my finger at you guys. And by the way, when I point a finger, I got three pointing back at me. God says, Dudley, love Chris to the point of extreme sacrifice because that's the way that Jesus loves you and loves his church. And I will tell you this, over the years that I've been the pastor here, I have seen men do exactly that. And that has been so encouraging to me. I know guys that for years have taken their marriage vows so seriously because there were times when it was, it was good and it was easy to love their wife, but it was for better or for worse and it got worse. And then it got worse and sometimes there were health issues involved and sometimes it was relational conflict, but they loved their wives and they worked through it and God has made their marriage stronger today because of that commitment. And I've seen the same thing happen with wives. Wives who were, who were dedicated to try to work it out according to God's word. Guys, I want to encourage you to do something that I think is it's not just important for you or for your family or even for the church. I want to encourage you to do something that I think is critically important for our nation and for our world. And it is simply this. Be the spiritual leader that God's called you to be. Our world's in serious trouble. We know that. This nation is in serious trouble. And what's going to turn things around? Well, it's revival, isn't it? We've talked about that before. And where does revival start? It does not start in the White House. It starts where? In God's house. It starts, guys, it starts with us, really, as spiritual leaders. And so, 
If you're a man, if you're married especially, if you're a Christian, I want to challenge you this morning. Not just encourage you, I want to challenge you to do two things. Number one is this, talk to God about your family. I mean, get serious about praying for your wife, for your children. And don't just pray for them, pray with them. And for some of you, that may be something new. And so I just want to give you the encouragement. Start small. You could just say a brief prayer when you have meals together. You could say it um, when your kids go off to school. Maybe they have a test that day or something. Not You could pray at night. You can pray when you get in the car. But start someplace. Talk to God about your family. And here's the flip side. Talk to your family about God. Because men, listen, if we're really, if we're doing what I'm talking about, if during the week you're actually reading the Bible and studying the Bible, do you think God's going to show you anything? I mean, really. He is. And what does God want you to do with what he shows you? He wants you to tell the people that are closest to you. Hey, I was reading today, and this is what God showed me. And if you've never done that before, here's what I urge you to do. Take the book of John. It's the biography of Jesus. Begin to read that for yourself and ask God, God, what do you want to show me that I can share with my family? And then you can bring your family into that conversation. Here's something that's really, really important. So many kids grow up in the church, and when they reach the age of graduating from high school, they just leave the church. Do you know one of the things that's most important to keep kids connected to the church and connected to Jesus it's called faith dialogue in the home. It's moms and dads who talk to their kids about their faith and about Jesus. So guys, I want to encourage you to do that, to be involved in the lives of your kids. And let me say this too. I shared this at first service because it was so encouraging. Um, this past Wednesday, we had a youth event at Jason and Jill Liberta's home. And so we had about 35 people there, students and moms and dads. Some of you were there. And I was just so encouraged when I got there there was a wiffle ball game going on in the front yard between the younger generation and us guys from a more experienced generation. And it was, in many ways, a father-son kind of game. And it was just great to see the fathers and their sons interacting. I still don't know how the younger generation beat us, but they did. And then after that, you know, we hung out and we ate pizza and then we had a worship time together. And I remember I was playing a song on the piano and several of the um, students were helping lead the singing and I looked out and there around the, the pool patio, all these students are worshiping God with their moms and their dads. And I thought, God, this is the way it's supposed to be. And this is what gives us hope for our generation, hope for our church. Because listen, if you want to have a strong, healthy church, what do you need? Strong, healthy families. So guys, again, my encouragement to you is talk to God about your family and talk to your family about God. And listen, I know that's not easy. I know that's a big ask. Because some of you are thinking, okay, yeah, um, I wish this sermon would hurry up and be over because there's a good chance my wife might even ask me about this and what I'm going to do. Guys, let me say this. I know that, that some of you have tried to have these devotional times with your families and it lasted for a few days or a week and then it just kind of went by the wayside because everything's so busy. Or maybe this is the situation. You're thinking, okay, Pastor Dudley, I get it. I will try. I will go home, and I will talk to my wife and talk to my kids. But I know, I can tell you right now, they're not going to go for this. They're just not going to be interested. Or maybe this is your situation. You're thinking, you know, 
here's, here's the truth. The truth is that we've got conflict in our marriage. We've got conflict with our kids. And there's no way that people are going to sit down and read the Bible together. We can't even talk together, much less pray together. Listen, guys, I get that. I have experienced that. But I also have experienced the courage that comes when you step out and you trust Jesus Christ. And you do what God is calling you to do. So men, let me just, let me just say this. Let me give you a Bible verse to encourage you. To talk to God about your family, talk to your family about God. It's Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Now, what you might want to do is write that reference down. And then look it up and write it on a 3 by 5 card and keep it with you throughout the week. Because I will tell you this, in order to do the things I'm talking about, you're going to need compassion, you're going to need consistency, and you're going to need what? What's the third one? You're going to need courage. And this is what God says to Joshua when he gives him a huge assignment to lead Israel. He says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Let's pray. God, I am really thankful for the power of your word, that it really is able to change our lives and change the lives of those we love. Lord, I know that um, this morning there's so many different situations when it comes to marriages and families and kids and in-laws and just the whole deal, God. But Father, I pray that we would take seriously what you're calling us to do. Lord, I pray for all of us to be people of, of compassion and people who are known for their commitment, people who are courageous. And God, I pray that specifically for the men who are here today. God, I pray that we would stop being passive. I pray that we would stop sitting on the sidelines. I pray that we would, in the, in the proper sense of the word, God, that we would become warriors for the cause of Christ and that we would pray and that we would protect our kids with our prayers and our wives and love them sacrificially because, God, here's, here's what I know, that if we will do that, you will honor us. You will change hearts. You will change lives. You will strengthen our families. You will strengthen this church. You will transform this city and this nation and this world as we, as men, step out in courage. And God, if there's anybody here today who's never made a commitment to Christ, I would just, Lord, pray that they would make the most courageous decision that anybody could ever make. To just say, God, I get it. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. And I don't understand all this stuff about following Jesus, but I want to do it. I want to give him my life. God, you always honor that prayer. And Lord, for us who have stepped across that line of faith, Lord, would you make us people like Jesus, people who are compassionate, consistent, and courageous. For we pray in his name. Amen.